Good morning, Grace. This weekend officially feels like fall, at least to me. The rain is coming, students are back in school, there's football on TV, and it's feeling like fall, which means all of the things I said I was going to do around the house this summer officially past due. So, uh, I've been spending a lot of time recently at the hardware store trying to finish all those things. I said, oh yeah, I'll do it sometime this summer. Summer's over. Time to get them done. So, I was at the hardware store recently, and a very nice employee came up and said, sir, can I help you with anything? And I said, first, I'm 32, don't call me sir. Uh, second, no, it's called DIY for a reason. I can do it myself. I got this, right? So they, they, they go off, and I stare endlessly at the wall of plumbing fittings, and I think, I have no clue what I'm doing here. I don't know what I'm looking for. Uh, I really don't know what I'm doing. And uh, time seems to stand still in a store, at least for me. But you can kind of tell how much time has passed by how many people have come up and said, are you sure you don't need anything? Can I help you? The store's closing in five minutes, right? Um, but I'm just a, a prideful, sovereign person and thought, no, I can do this myself. I can find it myself. I don't need help. And sometimes that's true. I know I'm looking for. Other times I have no clue what I'm looking for. I'm just hoping that something falls off the shelf and into my cart and is exactly what I need to uh, finish the project miraculously. Uh, you know, the, that desire to do things ourselves, to fix things ourselves, to not have to rely on anyone else to come in and point us to the direction, I, at least for me, that extends beyond just shopping in a store, right? Sometimes it's almost like the MO of our entire life, right? Like, I, I can do it myself. I don't need anyone's help. Uh, I can figure it out. I can just work harder. I can uh, take more time. I can do this. And that thought is almost like baked into our, our culture a little bit too, right? We are Americans. All we need is bootstraps. We don't need anything else. We don't need anybody else. We can do this. Even living in like the Pacific Northwest, right? Like we're the pioneer people, right? We're people of the woods. You know, we don't rely on other people's help. We're self-sufficient. We can do this all out of our own strength, our own smarts. You know, and honestly, in the past year and two, it's not like we've been encouraged to go to others, to be around others, to put an arm around someone else. This idea of you need to do it yourself in your own house, by yourself, your way. But how's that working? How's it working for you? How's it working for me? How's it working for us as, as a society, as a people? You know, even though individualism, this, this feeling of do-it-yourself is pervasive, we find ourselves in a very lonely age, which is funny considering that technology connects us more than ever. We're not more than one tap away from connecting with anyone on earth, yet all that connection doesn't seem to satisfy us, doesn't seem to meet our needs, something deeper that we long for. And interestingly enough, 
Harvard University did a loneliness in America study this year, earlier this year in February, they found this, that 36% of people responded that they feel, quote, serious loneliness, which means almost all the time. 36, more than one in three. And of young adults at age 18 to 25, it was 61%. Of moms with young kids, 50 one percent. We live in a lonely age. And we all feel alone at times. Maybe it's brought on by a particular event. Maybe it's a death in the family, the death of a spouse, of a mother or father, of a friend, and we, we feel that loss in our lives. Someone that no one else could replace. Maybe they're I've been broken marriages, broken families, broken friendships, and we feel that we uh, are, are alone or more alone than we would like to be. Maybe you find yourself new in town, at a new job, at a new college, at a new church, and you have a sense of, even though I'm around people, I still, still feel alone. I'm with or around others I am not in community with them. You know, even though we could point to a lot of things in our day and age that I think makes this uh, a serious issue, we look back through the timeline of humanity, we'll see this is really nothing new. And if you were to go all the way back to the very, very beginning, like in the beginning, uh, in the first couple chapters of the Bible talk about the origins of everything and the origins of us as humans. What do you think that the first emotion listed is? Now, this would be the first human, the first man, Adam. He is in a paradise. He has a great job. He's with God. Of all the emotions, Loneliness is the first human emotion listed. In Genesis 2, verse 20, it says this, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Even in paradise, Adam was alone, and he was lonely. And so God gave him a partner, gave him a companion. He created Eve, the first family. And since that day, humans have lived in families, in communities, in tribes, in nation, because built into our deep, deep DNA is God's desire and his building us out to be with others, to be in community with each other. See, you were made for community. I was made for community, that we as people were made to be with others. And even though at times we are tempted to think that, no, I'm a self-made man, I'm a self-made woman, I can do this, I really don't need anyone else, like they're nice to have in case things go wrong, but I got this, I can do this, I'm smart, I'm strong, I can figure this out. I would say, ultimately, we're just fooling ourselves. 
and we're living life against the grain of how we were made to be. And this is not just something we see in like one verse of the Bible. If, if you were to, to binge read the Bible, you would see this idea of belonging, of community come up again and again and again. We're just going to be able to look at a few of those places this morning. But let's look at the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, which is one of the, the wisdom literature of the Bible. And here's what it says about how we're made. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Although one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This is almost one of those like duh verses in the Bible. You read that and you're like, yes, that makes sense. But then why do we live the opposite way, right? And this verse is the sheer wisdom from God that obviously two are better than one, and then three are even better than two, so ergo four, five, and more is even better. But we still think like, well, if I fall down, I'll be fine. <laughs> if I get cold, I'll just figure this out. That is not how we were designed. It, if you just look at the two institutions that God creates and sets into motion, the family and the church, we might call it the physical family and the spiritual family, those are both highly relational and highly communal. You can't go off and have a family by yourself. Just like you can't go off and have church by yourself. Those, by their nature, have to be done with others because that is how God designed them to be. And we see this heavily in the life and the ministry of Jesus. In his words and his actions, he is constantly setting up his followers to live not as lone wolves, but to live and to act and to share life together. Let's look at one of these passages in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 3. Jesus is gathering some of his disciples in the middle of his ministry, and he's giving them a little field project to go out and to spread the message. And here's what it says. After this, the Lord Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Therefore, send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Now, Jesus could have covered a lot more ground, I'm sure, by sending each 72 out to 72 different places, but he puts them together, he puts them in pairs because that is how he is setting up his followers to live. And notice at the last verse here, verse 3, this warning that I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. There is danger out there. There is going to be problems that you run into. There are going to be things that come up that are scary, and you don't want to be alone. I don't want you to be alone. I'm not sending you out alone. 
Also notice that they're sent out in pairs for a purpose. It's not just like the buddy system at Disneyland so no one gets lost, right? Like uh, it, they are going out for a purpose, and that is to spread and proclaim the name and the kingdom of Jesus. You see, community is formed out of purpose. Whether it's in the church or, or not, whether it's where you work, where you coach a basketball game, where you get together, that at the heart of community is, is purpose, is reason. Because not, God doesn't just create us to be in community, to live our lives with and alongside others. He also creates us for a purpose, for a reason. Our, not, our lives are not just blank slates to do whatever we feel like with, to have the most fun, to collect the most toys, to have the biggest savings accounts so that when we die, they can, you know, pass it on to someone else. We have a purpose. And whether you feel like your life has purpose, whether you feel like you were intentionally made, no matter what the circumstances were of your biological mother and your biological father, there is a heavenly father who created you intentionally on purpose and for a purpose. You were not a mistake. You were not an accident. You were not an afterthought. You were intentionally, lovingly created for a reason, for a purpose and to have that purpose lived out with others that God brings around you as well. And we see this idea of purpose even all the way back with the first humans, back to that Adam and Eve story. They were not just sent to frolic around in paradise and uh, enjoy all the pears and strawberries, not the apple, right? They had a job. They had a purpose. They were to cultivate the garden. They were to steward God's creation. They were to be the leaders of everything that God had, had made in his image. They messed it up, but they had a purpose. In the same way, Jesus, as we just read, sent out his disciples with, with a purpose, with, with a mission. And it was a mission that was impossible to do on their own. And there was danger if they tried to do it on their own. And today, there is danger in trying to live life out of our own strength, out of our own power, with our own resources, but so easy to get stuck in that cycle. I know this happens to me often, and I bet it's happened to you before. You just think, I just got to get through this week, or I just got to get through this month. I, I'm too busy to ask for anyone's help. I'm too busy to let others into my life. I just need to work a little harder, spin that hamster wheel a little faster, and maybe in a week or maybe in a month, things will be different. How is that working out for you? I'll tell you how it's working out for me, right? A week turns into a month, turns into a year, and we can even spend our whole lives just thinking, I just got to work harder. I just have to spend more time. But out of our own strength, doing the same things over and over again, our situation life hardly ever changes. 
a lot of times our isolation or only letting people into the surface level of our life comes from our own pain, comes from our own embarrassment, our guilt. We think, man, no one else would understand. No one would understand how that relationship fell apart. No one would understand why I dropped out. No one would understand how that happened. Or I just don't want anyone to know. I never want to talk about or let anyone know that deep pain, that loss, that grief, that embarrassment, that failure. So if I just share the good things that are going on in my life, if I just share the, the surface level things, sports, the weather, work grievances, then maybe that will be enough. We just spin and we spin on the hamster wheel because we are zoomed in on the problems of life and we are focused on the pains and the problems instead of on our purpose. And if we were to kind of zoom the camera out to get a little bit above the day-to-day, week-to-week cycle and think, how could our future be different than our present? What plan and purpose does God have for the rest of my life? From above, what is it that is going to change this vicious cycle? I think it's reminding ourselves that we were made for a purpose. And when we see life's bigger purpose, it changes how we see everything else. And when you know that God made you for a purpose, and he has put you exactly where you are for a reason. He's put you in your neighborhood. He's put you in your workplace. He's put you in your school with your family and your friends that no one else has that exact combination of work, family, friends, careers. And he's put you there for a purpose and for a reason that you can't go through alone. And if anyone is a part of Christ's church, we are brought into God's family. And we go into the family business with him. When we believe that Jesus Christ came to this earth to live and to die for our sins, to remove all of our evil, our guilt, our sins, taking it to the cross, that he rose again so we could have a new life. We could be reunited with him, brought into his families, called his sons, called his daughters, brought into his family called the church, and we go into the family business together. And it gives our life the deepest possible meaning and purpose we could ever find on this earth. And it gives our life our day-to-day life, our decade-to-decade life, a deep and meaningful purpose and a reason. And we're brought into God's family. We also have other brothers and sisters there with us. So what is this purpose? What is it that God has called us to and brought our lives into? Let's read Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is a, a 
famous, famous passage of the Bible, often referred to as the Great Commission, the parting words that Jesus gives to his disciples before he goes back into heaven. And he's gathered around them, and this is his final words to them as a group, a reminder of their purpose and a reminder of what they are to do together. Jesus says this, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the purpose of the church, the purpose of our life is to join in with Jesus, to do what he is doing in the world, to live out his mission. And he's created all of us with different passions, with different skills and and gifts. But together, this is a mission that we do. Impossible for any one person, impossible for any one family, even for, for one individual local church, but only possible when the whole body of Christ unites together. And notice Jesus' promise that I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this is not a promise given to one person, like just Peter or just James. This is given to the group together. He says, I'm going to be with you, all of you together. And certainly, this is a promise that we can read individually. God is with us in our pain, in our loneliness, but it's also in a bigger sense that God is with us most when we are with his people and we are with others. And that sometimes is not something that I want to acknowledge. Right? I think, man, if I could just drive into the mountains and get 100 miles from terrible people, then I could really be with God, right? But I'm denying the fact that the people who I want to get away with are the very people that God made and that God put in my life. Because people are messy. People hurt other people. No one is perfect, even followers of Jesus, people who have, who have trusted and followed Jesus. They make mistakes, say mean words, they mess up. There's conflict, there's drama. Things happen in families, things happen in churches. It's easy to think that, man, I, I really would, wa- would rather just try and go on this solo than deal with all the messiness of people. But here's the thing. God uses messy, messy people to bring about his purposes. And God uses the imperfections of us, of me, and you to bring about the good that he is doing in our world. And the, one of the miracles of God that we see day to day is that he continues to choose to use broken imperfect people together, all in a messy, messed up group, to be his light, his hands and feet into the world. And we can't remove ourselves from that in the midst of the messiness. 
we need, you need, I need spiritual community. And we think about the word community. There's lots of different ways that's used, uh, maybe different things we hear it. Uh, there's community events, which just could be like dog meetup at the park, right? It's a community, community event. If you're around the church, you might hear that word thrown out a lot. We're going to have some great community. We want you to be in community. It's the Second of three words that make up our church name, grace, community, fellowship. And it's one of those words where it's used so often, sometimes we only have a vague sense of what it actually means. What does that word actually mean? And how do we know if something actually is community, the way God designed it to be, and what's, what's not? Well, if we were to look at the whole scriptures of all the things that God has called community to be, we could probably list out a hundred different qualities, aspects of what godly community looks like. But let's just look at two right now that I think will define for us what community is. We'll also look at what community is not, and also why it's such a need for our life. First is this, that you need a spiritual community to support your needs, to support your needs. There will be a time in this life where you will come to the end of your rope. Whether it's the end of your emotional rope, the end of your financial rope, the end of your family rope, there is simply too many obstacles and problems in this life to think that you could go through all of them alone. And meeting the needs of others is one of the primary ways that the church has showed God's love throughout history. From the current day all the way to the early days of Christ's church, meeting the needs of others has been a primarily role and function of the church. We see this as early as Acts 2, probably happening only weeks or months after Jesus gave that command that we just read from the Great Commission. And it says this, All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to an, anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Here's the crazy thing about this. That for these early Jesus followers, their commitment to each other and their commitment to Jesus was so strong that if there was a need for someone in their community and they didn't have the money to support others, they're putting their house on the market. And they didn't do it begrudgingly. They did it with a glad and sincere heart. And if there was a need, people were putting stuff on Craigslist. People were selling houses and possessions and property to meet the needs of others. Now, this is a part of the Bible that we would call descriptive, not prescriptive. That means it tells us what happened, not necessarily what we have to do. I don't think Jesus is commanding all of us to sell all of our property and possessions all the time, but it does state the level of support that the church was stepping up the plate when there was a need. And Grace Community Fellowship 
is a church with incredibly generous people who have, for years and decades, stepped up to the plate when there was a need in our church and in our community. Every year, we give away tens of thousands of dollars in aid to people who need housing, people who need food, people who need help with their rent, people who are evicted, people who find themselves as single mothers or single fathers, as well as outside the church. We partner with dozens of different organizations, some who share our faith, some who don't, as we meet the needs of poverty, of hunger, of homelessness, of HIV and AIDS, of children without parents, and on and on and on, because that is what Christ has called us to do, support the needs of others. And in a family, in a church, we both support and are supported, and we need the support of others in our lives. Sometimes, like I said, emotional. Sometimes, like I said, financial. But we are foolish to think that we don't need the community. And it is impossible to address the deep brokenness in our society, in our city, and to offer tangible hope as a single person or a single group or a single church. It is only when we, as a collection of communities, come together that we can actually see Jesus' hope and love flow out of us. You know, besides just supporting needs, whatever they are, we also, oh, sorry, I was gonna, almost got a really good story. I'm going to s- scroll back to the story here. Uh, I'll tell you a time that I, need, that I had a need that uh, got supported. Uh, earlier this year, thanks to a little bit of stimulus money, we decided to, to redo one of the small bathrooms in our house. And we're, my wife and I were going through the Home Depot app and just, oh, let's get that, let's get that, let's get that light fixture, let's get that, um, that, vanity, and we ordered it, and I get a little notification, text on my phone that it's ready to get picked up. I'm like, oh, sweet, new bathroom's here. So I drive to the Home Depot, and they're like, okay, pull your vehicle there, and it was a, a sink, you know, countertop vanity, and they bring it out on a forklift, and then they put it in the back of my vehicle, which has the bumper now dragging on the ground, and I thought, oh, I have no plan for what I'm going to do with this. I just got excited. I bought it. And now it's in the back of my vehicle. This thing weighs hundreds of pounds. A dude brought out on a forklift. And now I'm supposed to become like Hercules and take this into my house? Like I, all of a sudden, like I, I have no clue what I'm doing. I, I call my wife, Marcy. I'm like, uh, I don't know what to do. Like, you're the strongest person I know. I don't think we can lift this together. And she's like, I don't know. You're the big man. Figure this out. And <laughs> uh, my moment of panic turns into, okay, I, it's impossible for me to do this myself. So I turn to my small group, my community group. And for whatever the reason that I probably didn't even think through fully at that time was I know that these people will help want to help, and will be there for me. And within one or two hours, there are two dudes at my house helping me unload this thing, get through the front door, and uh, only had like two or three like discs that got slipped. So we were totally good. <laughs> there are just some things that you can't and shouldn't do alone. And that's why God gives us community. Another reason is to shift our thinking. Let's read this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. 
We're commanded, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And this command to transform our minds is not a one-time thing, but an ongoing process. We are continually reminded to transform our minds so that we stay within the will of God, able to do what he commands us to do. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you've read. You, we all get into wrong patterns of thinking. We have blind spots. There are things we don't see the right way. We maybe get in our own little echo, cham- echo chambers where we think that, man, I view it the right way. I got the right perspective. I have the right idea. I figured it out. Aren't I so great? But community helps us shift our thinking. I cannot tell you in my own community group of maybe four, five, six other couples, that even though I am the, the token pastor in the group who gets asked a lot of the questions and things like that, how many times someone has said something that I thought, wow, I would have never seen it from that way. That they are absolutely right. I, I did not see that. I didn't think that way. I thought wrongly. I needed to renew my mind, shift my thinking. And the process of renewing our minds is a continual process that God initiates. It's a process that pastor would call sanctification. It's the idea that we are becoming more like Jesus every day in our thinking, in our actions, in our words, and in our minds, we're continually made more like Jesus. And this happens in a variety of ways. It certainly happens when we read God's Word. It happens when we pray or in communion with God. But it also happens when we are with others. And a lot of times, God renews our minds, and He uses others to do that, to speak truth into our life that we don't see, that, that we're not understanding. And in this verse of Romans 12, 2, the command to transform, be renewed by transforming our minds, just three verses later, it says this. In Romans 12, verse 5, it says, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And I think that it's a link to say that we cannot go off into a field in the middle of the forest and renew our minds by ourselves. That we need the wisdom and the insights of other godly people in our life to speak into our situation, to speak into our decisions, to speak into our life to help us shift our thinking. Yet when it comes to community in the church, I just want to point out something. That there is a trap to fall into called pseudo-community. And this is absolutely something that we need to avoid. In the church, a lot of times, we think that if we just show up and we sit down, we nod our heads and go home, we did the right thing, right? Like, the church offered something, I showed up, maybe I threw some money in the bucket, that's, I did what I was asked to do. So that must be community, right? I was in a room with a hundred other people. There are a lot of people there. Or, or maybe even one better, if you go to a Bible study, 
Okay. Now, man, you, you read and studied the Bible for an hour or more. Maybe you even answered a question. Woo! All right. That had to have been community, right? Uh, or, obviously, you signed up for a community group, right? It's, it's in the name, and you show up, and, and you answer the questions, and you go home, right? That had to have been community. It's in the name. How could it not have been? But did you become any more like Jesus because of that? Did you open up your life to your needs, to your thoughts? Did you support and offer help to others? See, simply sitting in an auditorium, in a church room, in someone's living room, talking about a topic, sharing things from your life that are safe and, and highlight real is not community, even if it's in the name. Going out to coffee with church people is not community. Spending time with family or friends, as enjoyable as they are, the question you have to answer yourself is this, am I becoming more like Jesus? Am I doing the things Jesus would do because of this group, because of this church? And that is what we as a church desire to do and to be. To not just people who go through all of the religious to-do list, but we're actually becoming more like Jesus. And we're actually living how he called us to live. And that requires us to actually open up and to be real about what's going on in our life. Not just the easy stuff, the painful stuff too. And it requires that we step into the lives of others and in their messiness, in their pain, to offer the love and the help of Jesus. See, when we embrace authentic community, and I know that's kind of like a buzzword in and of itself, but when we talk about what the actual way that Jesus would call us to live, we simply have to ask the question, do you have relationships that draw you closer to Jesus? Do you have relationships that are drawing you closer to Jesus? In an imperfect church, with imperfect people, in imperfect groups, is God working his miracle of grace through those things to draw you closer to him? Are you your real, authentic self, sharing your real, authentic life, and offering real, authentic help to others in that group? Are you opening up your life for others? Are you stepping into the help that others have given you? I'm telling you, that kind of relationship doesn't just change your life, doesn't just change others' lives too. Those kind of relationships change the world. They change our city, they change our nation, and they change the world. And when you say yes to that kind of community, you say yes to a better life. A better life for you, a better life for others, a better life for your children and their children, and a better life for our world. Because God works through community. 
and he works through individuals coming together to share life, to, to support, encourage each other to be more like him. I'm very blessed to say that there have been dozens of people in my life who have encouraged me, who have been a role model to me, who have changed the course of my life through their relationship with me. And I could be up on stage all day talking about those people, but I want to talk about just two at this moment. The names are Brian and Rob. Brian worked at a hospital in the lab, and Rob sold cars. And these were two of my youth leaders when I was in high school, and for years, Brian would open up his house to a group of a dozen high school guys every single week, and we would meet together, and we'd talk about life, we'd read God's Word, and they constantly always pushed us to talk about the real stuff and to really open and share. And they offered simple encouragement and support. And they never were pastors. They didn't go to Bible college. I don't even know if they even took like an e-course on being a small group leader. But through simply opening up their living rooms and their hearts, they changed the course of my life. And God doesn't need you to get lots of training before you can step into a community, before you can be a leader, open up your home for someone else. He simply needs you to be obedient to what he's asking you to do and to step into and live out the life he has called you to live. And when we say yes to a community, the benefits overflow our lives into those around us and into our world. And that's a church that we want to have. That's the life that we want to have for you, is that together we are becoming more like Christ and living and pouring out his love into the world. And so we challenge you and encourage you to say, what does it look like to say yes to that? Maybe you've never been a part of a group like that, and the courage is just to take that first step of signing up and of trying it out. Maybe you've been in a group like that for, for years. Absolutely wonderful. want you to continue with that. Maybe if you haven't been as, as open as you know you need to or should be, maybe it's just an encouragement for you to really open up and to really share your true self. You could even step and say, I want to open up my home to be a leader and to allow others to have a place where they can be known. Be open, be real, support others, be generous with your time, and live the life God has called you to live.